When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this edition of On the Mark with Mark Carmen, we've got one big guest for you, Nick Wright. First things first, Fox Sports 1, What's Right on Sirius XM Radio. Did radio with Nick. He's a fascinating guy, and we're going to have the big conversation with him, the deep dive on Nicky's background today. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Plus, don't forget my final thoughts at the end. I had a special week in New York City. On the Mark with yours truly, Mark Carmen starts right now. on the mark and I've been Nick Wright's a good friend of mine I worked in radio with him in Kansas City we've been trying to do this interview for two years I had to fly to New York to go to the US Open but it's happening today good to see you Nicky you too Carm I'm pl- glad we could finally get this worked into your very busy schedule multimedia superstar in Chicago as you always said you would be and I'll be honest as I at various points doubted you actually would be I people should know when you say good friend of mine I Mark Carmen might be my non-high school oldest friend in the world I in fact he is my oldest friend of people that I didn't go to school with and a lot of my success comes from Having worked with Mark Carmen early in my career, looking at the things he's done, things he does, and then trying to do the opposite. So I'm excited to do this. That's not very nice, but I still appreciate you doing the podcast. Let me tell the story, I guess, first, when I met you. I go to Kansas City. I get this job where I'm going to be the producer for Nick Wright's show. I'm going to do updates and they're going to perhaps let me host. So I was going down there to try to get on the air. I had no interest in your show, had, no, right. had nothing to do with who you were, didn't know who you were. And I walk in, and I see this, what were you, 27 at the time? So, I was, no, 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 I, I left Kansas City at 27. Okay, so, you were so I was, I would have been, you got there in 09, so I was 24 at the time. So here's this 24-year-old kid who's, wearing jeans down to his ankles he's standing there doing radio standing up then jumping into the chair then doing the catcher stance in the chair then getting out of the chair and you know you're you're a unique looking cat and i'm like who in the fuck is this guy uh sorry to throw that i don't swear on the mark too often but i was like that, that was my reaction and then about a month later i'm like this is the most talented dude that i've seen in the business you know what's so funny about that is my reaction to meeting you, it was so different. It was, you come in, you, you've got the salt and pepper hair, you are dressed great, you are put together, you look a little athletic, and I was like, wow, they really brought me, they said they were going to go out and find the best producer possible, and a month into it, I was like, well, this guy got me Tom Izzo on our first show ever, and since then, I think, has booked 17 consecutive beat writers from the secondary papers in their respective cities and is yet to properly execute one sports update. So we both had initial reactions of the op- of the opposing person's uh, viability that were proven to be 
off the mark as we are now on the on the mark podcast. It's very true, and I, I I think I think what I think what Ryan McGuire who hired me and then uh, we won't get into the part where he fired me, but he. Uh, I think he thought that I was doing all the bookings for the show in Chicago. He didn't realize that David Kaplan, the host, had all the connections. And all I did was, you know, 90% of the time remember to call them. But so, all right, let's go back. You're, you're, you grew up in Kansas City. People probably know that. You're, you know, diehard Chief fan. I guess a diehard Royals fan, too. Correct. All right. And, and your, your parents, give, give, just give a little background here. Your dad's a fireman and your mom's a lawyer. Is that right? No, no, no. So my dad's a fireman who also, during his journey, got a law degree. He was president of Firefighters Union, a longtime fire captain in Kansas City. My mom was a just very successful businesswoman, but not a law degree. Some postgraduate degrees, but not a not a law degree. And so I, I grew up. A lot of people assumed I was going to be a fireman or be a lawyer or a used car salesman. Those were the things people probably thought of me. But I. Uh, up until about age nine or ten, I was pretty convinced I was going to be Moses Malone. And then once I realized I was not going to be Moses Malone, I quickly transitioned that I was going to be someone that wanted to talk about Moses Malone. And so I set my sights on Syracuse very early. Uh, is the only school I, I ever applied to and the only school I was ever going to apply to. And thankfully I got in and started my journey there at WAR. Were you like were your parents like Nick? You're going to study tonight. You are not going out. Like was it? Would you call it a high performing family or was it more self motivated? Like, did your mom put you in your room until you have your homework done? You're not doing anything. The, well, there was an expectation of academic excellence that it, that had to be met in the household. I what I will say is that wasn't you had to get straight A's. It was now my sister got straight A's and A pluses. She graduated with a 4.2 or 4.3 GPA on a 4.0 scale. Uh I was much more of the approach academically which it was school wasn't incredibly difficult for me in in this regard. I could get B pluses, A minuses with very very little work put in and that was kind of my approach and so I never I don't think I I think if I would have brought home a C it would have caused drama in the house but I never did and so my parents didn't my dad uh was a little more hard-nosed than my mom on this stuff but I, I I brought home low A's high B's and I never I never really got I th- that was never a problem. I will say uh my parents my parents split up or got divorced when going into my freshman year and my mom also had to travel at this point she was essentially running sprints international division so she traveled a lot and there was a period of time in high school where I was a bad kid where I had I'd say limited supervision and and again, I my parents, I, I couldn't ask for two better parents. This is and a lot of it was just me being deceptive. Uh, but I had I mean, I had a period in high school where it was probably a nine month period where I had five separate police interactions. I'll call it that uh, and ended up locked up once uh, briefly, but still locked up in in as high school kids often do got you know charged with marijuana possession and so like I was I I I kind of lived a little more on the edge in high school than I certainly should have being a kid 
of means going with all the opportunity in the world in front of me. Uh, but I was, I was, I'm, you would, let me put it like this as a parent of three now, I can't imagine being my parent in high school. And whenever I think about my son, who's my oldest of the kids, uh, who's 21, uh, that whenever he would screw up a little bit in high school or get in a little bit of trouble, I would always think, well, how mad can I really get knowing what I know about how I conducted myself and I turned out fine? Would you say that uh, you were rattled by the, your parents splitting up? Did you see it coming? I don't know how personal we want to go here, no, but I'm curious. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I that's as for most kids, that was a – I mean, that's a – big moment in your life now when I was I think seven my dad moved out and they were separated for two years I think then he moved back in it was good I would say for another year or two and then it was really bad up until the divorce really bad it's all relative there was never any spanking wasn't even allowed in my household like there was so there was no violence nothing like that but listen my my parents were the only the only possible explanation for them ever getting together was to for my sister and myself to be able to exist my mom was when they got together uh my mom had degrees from Vassar Johns Hopkins and Harvard my dad had barely graduated high school at the time now since then he has a master's from Harvard and a law degree, but at the time he was a fireman in a union trade program at Harvard, like a six or 16 week program. That's when my parents met. And when they got married, the agreement was my mom with all those degrees was not going to work, was going to be a stay at home mom. And my dad was going to support the family as a fireman. And so my parents, they, my mom was from, uh, I, I wouldn't say wealthy, but a well-off New York City family. My dad was from a broken home in very poor part of Kansas City. Like they, It never really made sense for them to be together, and I think that they were spectacular parents, but they had very different ideas on everything, on life, on parenting, on everything. And so I would say it was anyone that grows up with your parents fight a lot, like, yeah, that that's a thing, and... Yeah, I'd say the divorce was uh, was a – I don't really think about it that much, but it was obviously a big moment in my childhood, a big moment in my life. Now, my dad moved two blocks away, and so my dad lived two blocks away for the rest of high school. I lived – you know, I split time, obviously, but my I stayed in the house that I had grown up in, so my parents did as good as you can do, but, you know, such is life, I suppose. I, I just uh... – always had a fondness for when you would talk about going to Chiefs games with your dad and the fact that uh, just how proud I mean I, I know you're proud incredibly of both your parents but there was a certain uh, something about with your, your dad and his journey that uh, I, I think you really wanted to promote I, if that's a word well so for the my dad yes uh, because there are parts of it that I just I I could have grown up I believe in my mom's household and been successful uh, I don't think I could have in my dad's. And so there's a part of, like, his story that I is, it, again, every, the, it's just I have a lot of respect for what he overcame. And, by the way, my mom, as a young adult, dealt, had a, her older brother died absolutely tragically, and she kept her parents together for 
30 years. Like, I don't mean kept them married. I mean, like, kept them afloat after because they they're losing a child the way they she lost her brother the way they lost their son so but the i think one of the th- reasons that i've had such i think work ethic and drive are my two best professional traits aside from my newfound gorgeous hair and um uh i think i got that because the i'll just give briefly the story of each of my parents my mom graduated high school young as I mentioned, went to Vassar, went to Johns Hopkins, went to Harvard. Uh, I think ended when she ended her time at Sprint. I think she was the highest. It was the highest a woman had ever risen in that company. So she's a super high achiever. My dad, as I mentioned, broken home, barely graduates high school, gets on the fire department, uh, goes to jail twice uh, because. Not not for anything he did wrong, but at the time it was illegal for firefighters to strike. And he was part of the union, and they struck. He was part of the union leadership, and they struck. They got thrown in jail. He had to be pardoned by the governor twice. And he went to Harvard for a union trade program, did so brilliantly in it that he was admitted to their master's program with the, I guess when they admitted him because he had done so well in the trade program, they assumed he had an undergrad, but he didn't. And then while running the firefighters union and he ended up being president of the firefighters union and being a firefighter and a dad, all these things, he, uh, he applied to law school. And I, again, I assume on his application when they saw masters from Harvard, they just assumed he had an undergrad and he got admitted. And then graduates law school, I I think at or very near the very top of his class. And then they weren't going to let him take the bar because he didn't have an undergrad. And found a way to I, – I think he's the only person in the country that that can say master's law degree and no undergrad. So that's him and my older sister uh, in high school, despite being 5'2 and tearing her ACL in the middle of her junior year – Got 13 varsity letters in 12 seasons. And, as I mentioned, was a super high achiever academically and ultimately went on to Columbia Law and now works for, and I I believe uh, will be a partner one day, if sooner than later, at one of the most powerful and prominent law firms in the world. So if, you know, I went to Syracuse and that was it. And I said, I'm going to talk about sports for a living. Like, with the advantages I had built in with, I I would say, I, pretty decent raw IQ points, those things working for me, if I'm going to do this for a living, to me the only way I could almost justify it is if I try to see how far I, absolutely far I can take it to the to the highest level. So that's where I would say that my family life there shaped my professional approach and the other way my family my parents shaped me is I got very very lucky that I had two parents that were deeply and firmly forever committed to racial and societal justice and I think that kind of created my almost ethical north star that I think I still I hope I still honor and kind of guides me to this day yeah you've you've planted that flag Nick and uh you know the one it's 
I, we're not going to go deep into a whole lot of sports today, but like the one tweet that you have pinned on your on your Twitter is is, is was your three minute take on Cap, and I I mean it's like a North Star. Like this is where this is who I am, and this is what I believe. And and that was I mean I'll look real quick. That had to be within the first two weeks of the TV show existing. It was the TV show started September fourth, twenty seventeen, and that is from. September 25th, 2017. So that's from, you know, start of the third or fourth week of the show. And pardon me, that's still something that uh, I'm, I, that's one of the things I'm most proud of that I've done on television. And that, that wasn't a political take. It was a take on race and equality and equal protection under the law. And there's a lot of stuff on TV that I wish I did be- do better. I I I was proud of how that one turned out. All right, so here let's uh, let let's go to Syracuse. Yep. And so I knew people that were at Syracuse when you were there, and the word on the street was that people would have their shows at Syracuse. No one would call. Nick Wright would have the show at Syracuse. Phone lines are full. So you already were you know you had something going on, and you were still very new at it so can you explain how that sort of almost immediately you were you had a feel for what you were doing well the let me back it up just a little bit i went to syracuse syracuse war is a professionally run radio station that is on the syracuse campus that forever students have run the sports department but it's an npr and jazz station that has a bunch of adults not students that are djs there that are business people there that are um and the the thing that WAR has been famous for is the play-by-play staff, the play-by-play department. When I got there, on the play-by-play staff was Anish Shroff, who now is an ESPN play-by-play anchor, Jason Benetti, who's the voice of the Chicago White Sox and an ESPN play-by-play anchor, Jason Horowitz, who was on, if you remember that show, Dream Job, and has done had a lot of big jobs. I think he now works for Westwood One. Those were the juniors and seniors leading the staff. And the way that worked was you would show up first semester freshman year at 4 in the morning once a week and do a two-minute sports update, the stuff that I killed you for not being able to do. Um, and, well, there's a, I, I mentioned that for a reason. And you would do that until you were cleared to do actual sports updates on the station. And once you're cleared for that, you would then do um, uh, practice play-by-play. And then after a year or so of that, you'd be cleared to actually call football, basketball, and lacrosse games. And as a sidebar to that, there was the talk show staff, which I believe was actually started by Adam Shine, uh, who's here in New York City and does a show on Mad Dog Sports Radio. And talk show staff... They didn't cut. They they didn't cut people. It was aside from Shine, there weren't a ton of huge, high-level success stories from it. While the play-by-play staff had Costas and Tarico and all these guys, right? Um, and so uh, the the I went there and I was like, well, I'll work on the talk show staff and also do the play-by-play staff. And first semester, tail end of first semester, sophomore year. I still had not been cleared to do sports updates because while I mocked you for not being able to do them, I to this day can't do them. And Jason Horowitz called me, and I'll I'll never forget where I was. I was walking to my then-girlfriend's dorm room at Syracuse, and he called me, and he said, 
Nick, I'm sorry. Like, I know how hard you work. I know how much this means to you, to you but, he, but we got to cut you. Like, so many kids go to Syracuse wanting to do this that if by the end of your third semester you're not even cleared for updates, you're never going to be cleared for play-by-play. So I got cut, and it, that was tough, but I had, over that year and a half, realized that what my real passion I thought was going to be was opinion and talk show. And so I really threw myself all into the talk show staff. I stayed I stayed there over winter break uh, and to answer phone calls for the student fill-in shows. I, I, I just went all in on that, and I ended up ultimately running that talk show staff. I had underneath me on that staff some true superstars. Uh, Mike Melter, who up until recently was doing mornings in Houston. Danny Parkins, who now does afternoons in Chicago. Andrew Filipponi does afternoons in Pittsburgh. Those guys were all juniors or sophomores when I was a senior there. And I also, going into my senior year at Syracuse, I thought I was going to get this one-in-a-million internship at WABC in New York. Uh, nation, it's basically nationwide. One person gets it. It's an apartment in New York. It's over $10,000 internship at WABC. One person gets it. I came in second. And so I didn't have a backup plan. So I stayed at Syracuse and on Z89, which is just a full student-run station, but mostly music, sports on the weekends, I convinced them to let me over the summer three days a week host my own two-hour talk show. And that show was called What's Right with Nick Wright. And not getting that internship was the critical moment for me because that summer staying there, I actually got an idea of the type of host I wanted to be, what to do, how to do it. And so I, I kept hosting that show, and then I did the postgame shows for WAR. And then after college, I uh, had an offer full-time with benefits at ESPN Radio New York City to be a producer because uh, I had interned there and I'd done a good job. And I turned that down to take a job offer back in Kansas City, part-time, $8 an hour, no benefits, producing the morning news show on a conservative news talk station during the week. And by producing, like assistant, assistant, assistant producing, I called police and fire stations, figure out everything that happened overnight, uh, because I was promised by Alan Davis, someone that changed my life by giving me that first chance uh that on Saturdays I could host what's right with Nick Wright for four hours and that's what I did and that's you know what I mean that's the that's the the kind of how I really got my first professional start after getting turned down for jobs in Snohomish County Washington and Kalamazoo and all these places for talk shows that did not want to hire me. I got a shot in Kansas City, and it was a blessing. I mean, to be able to start out in my hometown, and Kansas City is not a huge market, but it's a good sports market, and it's a good market for your first job, even if it's just Saturday afternoons for four hours. Okay, so you start out, you're doing a four-hour Saturday show. How long did that last before, I believe they gave you a night show where they were paying you, what, $18,000? No, no, no. No, that that eight dollars an hour still. Um, oh, that was a the yeah, so the the I, summer of '07, I start and I within a couple weeks that the weekend show starts. Uh, I by in January of 2008, 
Damon Amendolara, who was doing mornings, leaves the station to go to Miami. And there is some shuffling, and the night show opens up, and I get it. And so I do that night show at 8 bucks an hour from January of 08 until right around the start of baseball season in 09. And that was a big moment because so r- shortly after I get the night show, 610, my radio station in Kansas City, gets the Royals rights, which is great and a game changer for a radio station, but it's terrible for the night guy because unless you're the Chicago Cubs, almost all your games are at night. And so my 6 to 9 show five days a week during baseball season became a non-existent show four out of five days a week. And around that, that was probably you know, a rough point in my life. I had just won 50 grand on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I probably have some unresolved issues maybe relating to some of the things we discussed earlier. I'm During the summer, I'm basically unemployed. I'm not doing that news producing anymore. I'm doing a show, but the show doesn't exist during baseball season for four out of five days a week. So I'm doing a lot of gambling, probably drinking more than I should, certainly smoking more than I should. And most importantly, I'm not getting better. And so in that year, we have a Alan Davis leaves, Ryan McGuire comes in. And shortly after Ryan McGuire comes in, I let him know, listen, uh, if by this upcoming baseball season in 2009, you're not going to promote me, then please fire me because I have to be on the air. I have to be getting better. And uh, that was, and he said, basically, you're too young, not doing it. And But then they did it. And they offered me the midday show starting in April of 2009. And that's the one that the offer was 18000 I'm such a brilliant negotiator. I negotiated my way up to $23,400 a year, which got adjusted up to 24200 because I was like beneath the company allowed minimum for a full-time employee. Um, and I did that for a year. And that's when I really hit my stride. And as much as I love everything that I've done over the last decade, I don't start that from that moment until I left Kansas City, those three years of which you came in about midway or, you know, you came in right right around then or a little bit into that was maybe the most fun I've ever had uh, doing anything. It And because I was figuring it out and I was getting in radio beefs and we became the first show to ever beat 810 and after a year I got promoted to afternoons and much to the chagrin of some did that for a couple years and that then led me led me to Houston but that was that time in Kansas City well, that just makes me think about you were going up against a guy by the name of Kevin Keatsman who has now been fired from his own radio station I believe right. and you this was a legend in Kansas City sports radio, and you willingly attacked him. You also attacked his midday host, uh, and your good friend, my good friend Sarin Petro, who has me on a ten. And you know, you're a young kid, so you know where where where's the, for lack of a better word, where's the uh, the balls coming from? The ch- like, hey man, I'm just gonna go right at this guy and not worry what comes back at me. Well, I it started with Petro. And uh, the thing was this. I knew how hard I was working. I also knew what I was making. And I knew how not hard some other people were working. 
across the street at the other station. And I had an idea of how much they were making. And that probably annoyed me. And, what, what, I mean, what started the, the beef with your buddy Sir Petro was every Friday for one hour he would do trivia. And it was, he might still, I don't know, but it was just the worst, the most awful radio imaginable. It's just such a mail it in. And so I pointed that out. And he got very, very mad and saw me at a Chiefs game or Chiefs practice one day and basically said, do you know who I am? And threatened my status in the town or whatever it was. But then I beat him. And because of the fact that I beat him and then there was one of our afternoon hosts uh, quit, there was kind of flux there. And that was this is kind of an interesting thing. Our afternoon show was Chris and Cowboy. And Cowboy quit. And Chris uh, Hamblin, who I think doesn't like me now, um, he he said to anyone who listen, if Cowboy quits, I'm leaving. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. So Cowboy then quits because Cowboy didn't like our new boss. And I went to Chris and I said, are you leaving? He said, absolutely. Don't want to be here. Don't want to be here. I said, are you sure? He said, yes. And I went on the air that day and I said, Guys, you guys probably know Cowboys left the radio station. Looks like we're going to have a new afternoon show. It should be me. And I made the case on the air as to why it should be me. And Chris got very upset at me. But I, was, I, I don't feel badly about that. He told me he didn't want the job. He wanted to leave. And I got it. And, uh, and then I'm head-to-head against Keatsman, who had beaten everyone ever. He had beaten... The long list of Kansas City people. And I said I was going to beat him. And it was brief, but I did beat him. And I then had... My contract was coming up in Kansas City. Mike Meltzer, I mentioned earlier, was working in Houston. Danny Parkins, who I mentioned earlier, by the way, at this point, had come to Kansas City and was doing the midday show. And Mike Meltzer told me there was a job opening coming up in Houston at the morning drive show. And I called, uh, I called Gavin Spittle, the boss down there, and I said, "Hey, uh, here your morning show's coming open. It's going to be announced at the beginning of the week. I think I'm your guy." And I ended up being his guy. But you didn't want to leave, right? Like Kansas City's your home. You're doing afternoons. You're a diehard Chiefs guy. I mean, that was was that more? I guess you you've always had this thing that you wanted to be on the national platform that you're on now. But for you to leave your hometown, I mean, people they die to be able to do radio in their own city where they know the most and have the most connection. I say this to uh, young people I talk to a lot, and it's the best. There's two pieces of advice that I give young people, no matter the field. One is the internet is in pen, not pencil, so careful what pictures you know any what you write anything um but the other one is the best advantage anyone can ever have professionally is knowing where they're trying to get to knowing what the goal is and for me the goal was and always had been at one point in time even if it's incredibly fleeting being America's preeminent sports talk personality. And you're right, I didn't want to leave Kansas City. I was engaged. Um, I was thinking about buying a house. 
they were they they were going to eventually, even though they slow pedaled it, uh, offer me what I thought was more money than I could ever need uh, at 27. Not that, by the way, it was keep in mind what my salary tier had been. So it was it was just it seemed like a lot of money because it was oh my god my salary is going to start with a one and I never could have imagined that and the the but if I stu- if I stayed in Kansas City then I it, I believed I would stay in Kansas City forever and I was a little afraid I'd become what I had mocked the guys across the street who were entrenched who were there forever, who stopped really fully trying and live. It would have been, I mean, it's the road not traveled. It's an interesting what if. I think I could have worked in Kansas City for 30 years. I think I could have become, I I don't want to sound soaked in ego, but I think I could have become one of the city's most prominent people other than the pro athletes. Not a lot of like actual famous people in Kansas City, uh, like, I think the most famous non-pro athlete in the city might be the weatherman, Brian Busby. Like, you know what I mean? That's my hometown. I'm not mocking it. I love I love the place. And so, uh, and so, but if I stayed, I thought I'd stay forever. And I'd never set foot in Texas. But I knew if I really wanted to get to where I said I wanted to get to, I had to leave. And so, you can get to a national show from Houston. You really can't from Kansas City. And so I took the leap. Okay, so at that time, you're engaged to Danielle, who had two kids from before you came along, and you're moving, mixed-race couple, to Houston, Texas. Uh, not that Kansas City is the, the most liberal you know, city in America, but that's a big-time move. And now you're living in, uh, in Sugarland, Texas, which I was fortunate enough myself to stay with Nick for about a, a month living in his place. I was a great roommate. But... You know that that's a different land, and and I experienced it myself, and I heard things down there. And there's good people everywhere. I I don't want to completely, but it, but it's different down there. That that had to have been an adjustment. Yeah, listen, there's the there is no region of the country that has a monopoly on idiocy or hate or isms, and there's no place in the country that is free of it. Uh, but Texas is different for for a lot of reasons. Uh, the gun culture there is different. The almost tribalism based on are you a Texan or not is different. And I really, really liked Houston. I did not love Texas. And so, but it was professionally what I had to do. I loved my co-host there, John Lopez. Uh, I was doing morning drive in the number six market in the country. And I, it also gave me some opportunities to do a little television I started doing a national radio show on Sundays, and professionally, it was exactly what I needed to do, and thankfully, my wife, who's always been the best partner anyone could imagine, did not bat an eye when, before I even had interviewed, she said, we're moving to Houston, I already know it, and we were getting married, but we weren't married yet, I hadn't adopted the kids yet, and we packed up our lives and moved to Houston. If you could have just stayed in Kansas City and gotten to where you're at right now, would you have gone that route? If I could have replaced the four years in Houston with four years in Kansas City and had the exact same career, yeah, I would have done that, but that doesn't exist. I would have also become Moses Malone, as I said at the beginning, but that doesn't exist either. Like, I I have no professional regrets. But I also, 
I love Kansas City and miss it enough that I never go back. Um, and I mean that sincerely. Like, I I left there in 2012 after living there my entire life except for college, and I did not come back until uh, 2014 for two games of the Royals playoff run. And then I went back for Danny Parkin's wedding. And I went back for one other thing. But I've been a, I left Kansas City in June of 2012, and I've been back for a total of six days. And my dad still lives there. Um, but it was, that place will always have a part of my heart. And I love that city, but I, but I had to, I had to leave in order to be where I am. And where I am, by the way, is not the end of the road. Cause I, I don't know if you've checked, but I'm not America's most prominent sports personality. So I have a long way still to go, but I, at least it's on the board that it happens. Okay. Let's, let's go from Houston to Fox sports. Um, and I believe you were in, correct me if I'm wrong here, you were in negotiations with both ESPN and Fox, and you ended up at Fox. Yeah, the um, I got some really good advice from a guy named Scott Geiger, who goes by Laszlo in Kansas City, and from my wife about why, Fox, about why Fox was the better opportunity, even though obviously ESPN was certainly at the time uh, the bigger brand and the bigger name, and... I moved, yeah, I moved to L.A. Wife and kids stayed in Houston for a year because our youngest son was finishing high school, attempting to get a basketball scholarship that he didn't quite pull off. And, uh, yeah, I moved. I the I had an offer from ESPN based in L.A. And I turned that down, took the Fox offer. And after nine months of me filling in for Colin Cowherd and doing other things, filling in on other people's shows, guessing on other people's shows. Uh, they approached me about moving to New York, getting with Chris Carter and fronting the television show that I do now. And that obviously was a game changer for me professionally and hopefully a, a bit of a game changer for the network as well, because we had just hired Skip. Colin was already doing Colin's thing. Jason's show was already up and running and now we were going to be able to have a morning show to lead off the day and we're approaching the two-year anniversary of that as i said the day after labor day be the is the two-year anniversary of that okay so two years in i think the fact that you just had enos Cantor in studio and he brought you a celtics jersey you showed me the video last night so here's a professional athlete who's watching the show and wanted to come on and and be a part of it so I would assume, like when you see stuff like that going on, that you feel like you're you're actually you're, the footprint is happening. You're you're being known by a ton of people. I know you've pissed off some athletes too. So I'm assuming you're thrilled with how things are right now. Yeah, I don't. I don't really operate in that space mentally. Uh, I I am very grateful and I'm very blessed. And there are this there are times that during the TV show that I still like when I'm not talking but I'm watching Chris where I kind of have a moment where I'm like, holy bleep, this is your life. Like you're just sitting across the table debating sports with Chris freaking Carter. Uh, and, you know, in his canner yesterday, you know, check, rub my head to check and see if my hair was real. Um, those are really cool things. And I get, I do a radio show now as well on Sirius where I follow up Mad Dog Russo. 
Um, and, you know, Colin Coward, who was my professional idol, I talked to him once a week off the air. And not only could still go on a show on the air, but off the air because he's one of my close friends. So in that regard, I listen, I, I've worked very, very hard, but I also have had every every good bounce that I could have gotten, I've gotten. Uh, and that dates back to the time I was talking about in high school where I could have ruined my whole life and I just got lucky a bunch of times consecutively. Uh, and so that, you know, that all, yes, the, I'm, I'm very happy, but I am far from content and I have not yet come close to achieving my ultimate goal. And by the way, while the show is doing well, I don't, I'm not even on the number one morning sports show. So I've got, got a ways to go. The, the only thing I've ever beaten the likes of Colin and Skip and Stephen A. in is a poll for America's most annoying sports broadcaster, whereas a 16 seed, I won it against that stacked Final Four. But in in other in in all the other ways, I got a ways ways to go. Well, it's interesting. In the whole, I was the most annoying 16, whatever you that you win it. You celebrated that on the show. There's a certain comfort of, there's a certain comfort that you have in in not being necessarily well liked, but you also. I mean, you. I I've seen you walk in Kansas City where you want to be recognized. You love people. You love talking to people. You know what I'm saying? I, listen, the, the, you'd I'd prefer to be loved, but the second best thing to be is hated. Um, I mean, that's just the truth. We we're the. It's tough to cut through, and the 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 worst thing someone could say about me is I don't care. So I don't go out of my way to be hated. And again, I don't think I, I don't think I say many hateable things. There are certain fan bases I get. Eagles fans are still not over the fact that I canceled their Super Bowl chances when Wentz got hurt. Celtics fans will never like me. Uh, you know things like that. But I, I, I don't. I don't think I'm. You know, I have much. I, I don't think I have many. There, there's. There's not many things I do that I think should be hateable. Maybe it's just my face. Maybe the hair will help. Um, but. Chris Russo said this once, and he's right. The goal of a talk, the the job of a talk show host is to make people emote. You'd prefer that emotion be positive, but if it's negative, that's fine too. Uh, as long as you feel something, as long as people think I'm authentic, and so, and I think people know I'm authentic, and I think they feel something, and I think people are starting to like me a little bit more. At least, at least that's what I tell myself. Wrapping up with LeBron, when's he coming on the show? Man, man's busy. He's the now that he's already basically universally accepted by people who know things as the greatest basketball player ever. He's trying to become the greatest athlete ever. So that's gonna that's gonna take some time. Even I think maybe he hasn't yet got to the peak of that mountain. But the real question is that more and more educated people are becoming. In 15, 20 years, are people going to consider Jordan the second greatest, or are people going to finally put the respect on Kareem's name and put Jordan maybe third place? That's really what I want to know. So this is the point in the podcast where I get very upset and say, who would you rather give the ball to if you needed a bucket in the fourth quarter? We know the answer to those questions. The facts don't lie, but your childhood nostalgia will always prevent you from seeing the truth. We can do this another time, Mark. i got to go. Nick literally just walked out of the studio. Nicky, good to see you, buddy. See ya. That was my conversation with Nick Wright. Always great to talk to Nikki. I was in New York for the U.S. Open, my favorite sporting event to go to, watch tennis for 12 hours. I always go the first couple of days because all the outer courts are going, 
and you can literally sit in the first row and you're seeing top 15, top 20 players in the world right in front of you, and it's just awesome. And I literally never want to leave at the end of the day. And then when I'm taking the plane home, I'm basically weeping on my way back because it's just a little siesta at the end of August where I don't think about anything other than just enjoying myself and watching tennis. But my favorite match from this year's U.S. Open was one I wasn't at, and it actually had nothing to do with the play on the court. Coco Goff, 15 years old, amazing story, loses to Naomi Osaka, the number one seed, 6-3, 6-0. And now they're actually both out of the tournament because Osaka just lost as well. And Coco's distraught after she loses, and maybe you've seen the video. Naomi walks over to Coco. Hey, will you come do the on-court interview with me? The winner always does an on-court interview. The crowd doesn't really listen. And then she hits, or he hits, three balls into the stands after the interview. Coco says, no, I'm going to cry. And Naomi says, hey, better to cry out here, get it out, than go in the shower and cry all by yourself. Clearly something that Naomi has done and can relate to. So Coco, give her credit, says yes and, and does the interview and is all class. But my favorite moment is when Naomi looks at Coco's parents and starts sharing about how when she was coming up, they were training at the same place. And I'm imagining Naomi... Japanese, female, not like every other female you see on the tour. She probably felt like a bit of an underdog. And here's Coco and her and her parents in a pretty damn wealthy sport. African-American coming on up, something you don't necessarily see every day. And the way I heard it, it seemed like she sort of bonded, resonated with their journey with her own. Here's two underdogs. Nobody thinks you're going to make it, and both of them making it all the way through playing on the biggest stage at Arthur Ashe Stadium in the U.S. Open. And you never know what's really going on behind the scenes, but to hear that she really appreciated the family and the parents and the way they supported her kid, it just made me feel googly all over that, wow, that's just a, a great story of parents holding vision for their kid and supporting being good people, and for once, or at least in this particular instance, they won. It worked. They made it to the biggest stage against all odds. And I just thought it was so incredibly beautiful. And Naomi is someone who you really don't hear a whole lot from, so I never had a feel for her. But I'll never look at Naomi Osaka the same way now. I'll always have incredibly good feelings for her. And the way she handled looking back... Uh, beating Serena last year when Serena had her meltdown. And by the way, Serena's another person who I love and have tremendous respect for. But Naomi is just showing herself to be pure class. Um, so that was just a really, really awesome moment, and I wanted to name it on the mark. Check out the video, by the way, if you didn't see it. It's, it's just awesome. And if you don't get a little tear in the eye from watching it, well, then me and you are not on the same wavelength because, yeah, that's right. I had one or two tears from that one. Thank you so much for listening to On The Mark, which comes out every Monday afternoon. Please subscribe, give a rating, tell a friend. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks again to Nick Wright. We will see you next time.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.